Welcome to this edition of the Brookie and Berger podcast. Welcome, Darren Burgess. Okay, Brookie. That was uh, that was Elvis. I guess you probably figured that, did you? Uh, pretty unmistakable uh, voice. Uh, Elvis Presley recorded that uh, way back in 1967. That version of "You'll Never Walk Alone." And uh, we played yeah, that at your uh, 60th, didn't we, Brookie? <laughs> He's, uh, it's a pretty special sound, isn't it? He's just got an unmistakable voice. But anyway, we're not here to talk about music. We're going to uh, introduce our guest, and we're very fortunate uh, today, all the way from South Africa. We've got Paddy Upton, and uh, welcome, Paddy. Thanks very much, Peter. Darren, very good to be on the show with you guys today. Now, I was thinking about how to introduce uh, you, Paddy, and, and you wear so many hats, and, uh, you know, from being a, uh, a high-level uh, cricketer and rugby player and then a strength and conditioning coach, a mental skills coach, a coach. So, uh, yeah, I'll, why don't we let you uh, tell us your story. Tell us, take us back to, to your childhood and, uh, your, first of all, your sporting career and then maybe how you move from your own sporting career into, uh, into the sports science world. Uh, thanks very much. Um, sure, I'm definitely going to have to um, cut a few corners and uh, because, as you said, there's, you know, I was, I'm from South Africa and Cape Town and I guess I kicked off really being fascinated with cricket and rugby and played that at a fairly high level um, on, into university where I studied biokinetics and, and did a master's degree in sports science. And sort of towards the end of that master's, I'd actually then upgraded it to a PhD and I was sitting with... Um, playing cricket at a high level, rugby at a high level, doing a PhD in strength and conditioning, not really sure which direction my career was going to take because you can't do all three of those at a very high level. And then sort of in the mid-90s, Bob Woolmer was the coach of the South African cricket team at the time where Hansi Cunier was the captain. And they figured that strength and conditioning coaching was probably important enough to have a full-time person in that role in international cricket. Because in 1994, every professional cricket team in the world, the only support staff they had was a coach, a physiotherapist, and a manager. And sort of Bob Woolmer, for those who knew Bob Woolmer, he was sort of more comfortable around a buffet table than he was a training ground or a gym. Um, so I sort of had to borrow, a, a, borrow um, a, a smart shirt and a tie because I was living in a student digs at the time to go to this interview. Um, and ended up being offered the job at the age of 24 of the full-time sort of traveling fitness trainer with the South African cricket team. And I had a big decision to make. Do I continue pursuing my cricket? Um, I probably wasn't as good a rugby player, but I actually enjoyed rugby more than cricket. Or sort of hang up both of those boots, pack my, my studies in, in my backpack. And that was my decision to go and travel with the, the South African team as what at the time was the first uh, fitness trainer, what we called it then, or exercise specialist, actually, uh, which went on to be called the SNC as we know today. Um, yeah, and I spent four years in that role when I finished with cricket, hopped over and did it in, in professional rugby. And that's when I sort of realized that for me, this wasn't enough. Yes, we got the guys really fit and eating well, which really wasn't difficult in the 1990s in cricket, certainly, because only because no one else was doing it. So if you were just running around the block one more time than other guys. Genuinely, you were fitter than other teams. And that sort of really kicked me off to this is, this is not enough. This is a very incomplete view of preparing an athlete, just having a coach and a fitness trainer. And that sort of, I moved in a number of different directions there, away from sport, in and out of sport. And um, I guess the next sort of the big uh, step for me was this coming across this concept of executive coaching, which refers to coaching of business executives in the early 2000s that sort of became 
uh, quite a popular way forward um, where business uh, businessmen were saying and women were saying this really difficult at the top and things are getting more and more complex, particularly with the Internet that's come along and business leaders. It really asked them start to start leading in a fundamentally different way. Um, in the in internet era or the age of information compared to the industrial era where they had been leading with this authoritarian instruction-based command and control lead as the content expert way of leading and in business and even in sports in the, in the, and in the previous century, 30 years ago, the person who got to the coach or the CEO position was someone who knew more than anybody else about what needed to be done in that environment. So their leadership was one of telling people what to do, that instruction-based leadership. And 20, 30 years ago, most people were happy to receive information, instruction from somebody who knew better. And people's jobs largely then were to be diligent followers of instruction. But along came the internet and fundamentally changed that. And today it's no longer possible to be the expert in anything. The expertise has moved out of leaders' heads onto the World Wide Web and actually into teams now. And I believe there's in most teams, there's actually more intelligence collectively within a team than what there is in a small number of support staff's heads. So that got me on that very different journey of coaching leaders. Um, you know, and I, I stumbled into mental conditioning coach because in sports, I was now coming in asking sport coaches and su support staff members to start leading differently. Stop standing at the front of the room and dictating and telling players what to do. We really need to start engaging players and athletes in the conversation about what needs to be done. But in that time, in the early 2000s, coaches had really, who had got to the top of the game, had got there and they were, they were used to using their position of authority and power at the front of the room to dictate to people what to do. Uh, so I was quite a threat in the sports world, asking old dogs to do new tricks. And eventually players said to me, well, you know, this is some interesting stuff. Why don't you come and talk to me? And I ended up spending the next good few years working one-on-one -on -one with athletes, helping them think differently about their game uh, and start taking more responsibility for understanding their minds, their bodies, their game, and not just rely on one coach telling them what to do. So I, I accidentally fell into becoming a mental coach in sports because it was actually athletes themselves who were more open to looking at new and better ways of doing things. Um, and if I'd maybe just add one more piece, because I've already blah, blah, for a whole long time. <laughs> no, no, not at all. all. And, and then, you know, athletes started then talking to their coaches and some of those athletes started becoming coaches and they were saying, you know, we need to be doing things differently in sport. This old school model of one expert or a couple of experts telling a squad of 28 people what to do. It's just not nearly as functional or effective anymore. We need to start catering for different needs, different learning styles, starting to create much more inclusive cultures, much more inclusive conversations. As a strength and conditioning coach, I look back and I thought, Gee, I was taking responsibility for players' bodies and telling them what to do. And I think that's fundamentally flawed. I think we need to empower players to take responsibility and understand their own bodies as they move from one sport to one team to another country. And they need to use coaches or strength and conditioning coaches or mental coaches just to add to their own library of understanding their game and stop these experts being, uh, you know, just owning players' bodies and being the sole decision maker and owning players' minds. So, and I realized as a fitness trainer, that's what I was doing. I was just purely using the prescription model. And it was only more recently that one of, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the IPL in the Indian Premier League, it's only seven years ago, one of the players, the team had been bottom of the log for four years and said, Paddy, the stuff you're trying to get coaches to do, we, we've tried all coaches. We, we, we're losing all the time. We don't have the same, as good a team as any of the other seven teams. Why don't you come and try this different approach here? And, that kicked off the last sort of eight years. I've spent most of the time in professional sport, stepped out of the mental conditioning coach role now and actually been the head coach in T20 cricket leagues around the world. And the only reason I happened to get that was I never wanted to be a head coach. I'm not that interested or knowledgeable enough in cricket when it comes to technique, tactic, strategy, actually to hold that position of a head coach. For example, in, in IPL, I've done seven IPLs as a head coach. There's no ways I'm qualified 
cricket-wise to be holding that position. And the only reason I did is because so many other coaches are so slow to upgrade their coaching software to a more collaborative, empowering, harness the collective intelligence approach. They just left one lane open. Um, and so a player asked me to come in, well, why don't you come and run in this lane that's been left open? So, so take us through that, uh, that that journey. Yeah, I mean that was in Rajasthan, wasn't it? Where you uh, you started your uh, your IPL career, and they were uh, That's a right. bottom team, as you said, they were a bottom team that underachieved, and uh, they asked you to come on board. And, and what did you find when you got there? Well, well, Peter, if I may actually explain how how the hell I got to being selected as coach, and that I think that best illustrates my philosophy. Yeah, please so the, the reason the reason Rajasthan were bottom of the log, they won the first IPL. They spent the next four years at the bottom of the log. Main reason being all teams get thirteen million dollars to buy players in the auction. The IP the Rajasthan owners gave the team six and a half million to buy players, and they kept the other half to run the <laughs> franchise. So they were just not competitive. They didn't have the money to buy the big name players in the auction. Um, so they had to employ a strategy of finding really young high potential talent that came cheap and trying to make the most out of that. So they arrived every IPL on paper, you know, the, the worst team in terms of stats. And Rahul Dravid was the coach of the, uh, sorry, the captain of the team at the time. He knew my philosophy because I'd worked with them for three years when I was the mental coach and strategic leadership coach with the Indian national team. And he said, why don't you come and try your stuff here? So he put me on the, um, I was on the short list. There was three proper cricket coaches and myself. Sitting in the interview, Clive Woodward actually happens to be on the interview panel because he's in business with one of the owners. Clive was the uh, 2003 England Rugby World Cup winning coach. Yes, you have to remind um, us of that, Teddy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And I knew Clive had actually taken the 2005 British Lions team to New Zealand. And he took, 20, he took 45 players on that three-match tour and 28 support staff to serve those 45 players for just a three-match tour. So I knew his philosophy on getting in expert consultants. And Clive said to me in the interview, so I believe you're not actually a cricket coach, which is not a great question, by the way, to get when you're interviewing for a cricket coach job. So I said, yeah, I've never coached a team uh, before. Um, and he said, so you're obviously going to get in expertise that you don't have. So you're going to get a batting coach and a bowling coach and maybe a fielding coach. And I'm interested, if you get in expertise that you don't have or who play, coaches who, who more senior to you in the cricket coaching world, well, the reality, anyone who coached cricket was senior to me in the cricket coaching world at the time. And he said, how do you see this dynamic of you of head coach going to lead people who actually are a lot more experienced and senior to you? Do you see a problem in that dynamic? And how will you manage it? And my answer to him was, if you offer me the job, there won't be a problem in that dynamic at all, because my prerequisite before accepting the job is I want no batting coach, no bowling coach, no fielding coach, and I want no SNC either. I want no experts on the support staff. To which there was dead <laughs> silence. silence. And this, and like, there was, I think, six or seven people, and there was just this pregnant silence. And someone, one of the Indian owners said, what do you mean? And my answer explains my philosophy. I said, you're going to give me 25 players in this IPL. They're going to come from tw five different countries. In this year alone, they play under more than 25 different coaches, each with their understanding of how to play T20 cricket, under more than 25 different captains, and between them all have over 1,000 games of T20 experience. That's the expertise I'm going to use to build the entire campaign. I think one of the reasons I probably got the job is I can imagine the chief bean counter sitting that interview doing the right thing. <laughs> yes. No, it's like no yeah. batting coach, no bowling coach, no fielding coach. Like save on four salaries. Give that from Cape Town the job. And he's not even a proper cricket coach, so we don't have to pay him properly. <laughs> so, um, and I literally went in that season and we did that. I sat down the players and I said, right, you know, collectively, let's talk about every facet of cricket from pre-match meetings to post-match meetings bowlers meetings dress codes travel times practice and let's start redesign everything to really work for us and our starting point was let's take pre-match meetings what's the best pre-match meetings and again in that room you've got people who've sat in every shape and form of pre-match meeting across the cricket playing world 
what's the best meetings you've ever been to? Give them a score out of 10. And interestingly, bowlers meetings are one that's always fascinating. No one's ever come up with a, with a more than a 6 out of 10. So for bowling coaches out there, I'm sorry, your bowlers really don't rate your bowlers meetings. So the thing is, okay, so the best you've ever sat in is 6 out of 10 in terms of value in, for preparation of a game. What does 6 out of 10 look like? And can we, what do we need to do to make it even more valuable than that every time? And each time we do a meeting, we're going to score it. And if we can't be hitting sevens and eights, what are we going to do? And they said, we scrap bowlers meetings and let each person prepare they, the way they want to and have the conversations they wanted. So we redesigned everything. And you know, as Peter, I think, you know, that, that season, that very same team, went on and just shot the lights out. We won 13 out of 13 home games, longest home game winning streak. Uh, we made the IPL finals. We went on to Champions League and went unbeaten to the Champions League final. We lost in the last over in the final against Mumbai. And this was just with the same bunch of youngsters, but with so much ownership for what they did in that team, even down to their strength and conditioning. Um, we figured out, what do you want to do that's going to give you an unbelievable experience this season in all departments. And if you have an unbelievable ex experience, there's a good chance we're going to disrupt some of the big dogs parties, which was our plan. Mm, it's, uh, it's as good a sort of 20 minute intro as we've had Brookie, on this podcast. <laughs> and it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, we were so keen to get you on because of the vast array of experience that you've had. Um, what have that obviously you attribute the success that you had with Rajasthan through player empowerment and um, and obviously your excellent listening skills and uh, uh, the ability to take on that information and perhaps filter the information. H has that philosophy or that strategy failed? Um, and if so, if it hasn't, which, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's fine as well. What are some of the dangers of that sort of philosophy? So, yes, it has failed. Um, and my, probably my biggest lesson was I, I went from there and then I, I went to Sydney Thunder and it worked really yep. nicely with the Sydney Thunder cricket team. Or we went from bottom of the log to winning the championship. And then from there I went to uh, the Pakistan Super League and I picked up a new team there. And I had this philosophy that had great success at Rajasthan and Sydney Thunder. And I brought in that philosophy, very excited. And I, I didn't pay clear enough attention to who was in the room. Uh, and it, my, that empowering philosophy, and it was probably three steps too far ahead of where the players were. Because particularly in the Pakistan, they're still very much a paternal, authoritarian, hierarchical environment where players... They are used to being told what to do and barked mm -hmm. at is probably more relevant. So they arrived there. They've never been asked to think for themselves. They've never really been asked to make a decision. They're used to just not thinking, arriving, being told what to do, and then being those diligent followers of instruction. And I arrived there saying, right, we're going to co-create this environment. And it took about three games into the season where we were really directionless. And I realized we actually don't have the intelligence in this team uh, or the proactive intelligence and the, and the engagement to actually be able to collectively come up with the best plans. And it took me three games to realize that I wasn't paying close enough attention. Um, and it was like, wow, okay, so now what do we do? I've got to revert back to actually being more instruction-based, telling people, that they must practice and when they arrive at practice telling them what to practice and when it comes to eating I've got to tell them what to eat and we've got to tell them how to train and when it comes to game time we've actually got to tell them what to do and so we didn't have the sufficient collective intelligence within the team or the degree to which I was asking it and the degree to which was there was a mismatch so someone who is looking to employ a slightly more player centric or empowering approach it's to understand where is the team and i need to pace them just by one step or five percent and that i guess that would be a a challenge for you in in roles coming up to see whether the team matches the philosophy uh no it's it's pretty simple i mean this philosophy works 
with almost all adults. There, there's not many adults who, who are very happy being told what to do yeah. all the time. It, listen, that, listen, then there are athletes who like that, who really do like to not think for themselves, be told what to do. Um, I said that number one, it means they don't have to think, they don't have to take responsibility. If things go wrong, there's always somebody to blame because the coach told me to do it. There are athletes like that, but more, there's certainly the, the majority are athletes who do actually want to make decisions for themselves, be involved in decision making, not be just instructed at all the time. So it almost always works. It's just applying it in the right um, amounts and at the right speed for that particular listening. And and I guess uh, as an expansion of that, Patty, given your background in strength and conditioning, and um, you know, you thought uh, you mentioned earlier that there was just there was more to it um, and more to performance than that. Which which I think, um, even coming from that sort of discipline myself, I, I, you know, I absolutely agree with. I guess the the question is for those of us still in that performance field. Um, w- what are some of the pitfalls that we can fall into other than the, the ones that you mentioned or the one that you mentioned at the start, which was thinking that your area is, is the answer when it clearly isn't? Um, what, what are some of the pitfalls that we can fall into or tips that you might have in dealing with athletes um, rather than just saying three sets, eight reps or you know, five by 80 metres with one to three work to recovery or whatever your poison is? Um. For me, it's. I think the main one is is neglecting to really listen to the athlete, to really to really understand the athlete, and to take whatever expertise we've got, whether we're the the, the, the sports scientist, whether we're the doctor, the physio, the, the even the me- even the mental coach or the S and C, it's to ask understand the athlete what does the athlete need what does the athlete want what is going to serve the athlete best where might the athlete be holding themselves back and then to tailor our message that it serves that athlete best and not just yes we need to be serving the short-term needs so if it's rehab or preseason, we need to be getting them ready and we've got three months and we need to make sure that they're doing the best thing there isn't the opportunity to go and play around and experiment with a couple of things and spend three weeks getting something wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, so certainly the short, the short term when prescription works, tell them what to do because we have our training and we know about more about that area than what the athlete knows. But for the medium to long term, that, that really doesn't serve the athlete by prescribing them what to do. And especially in the modern day, because athletes now they're moving, they might be playing for their national team, for their state team, and then they'll be playing for club teams and some of them, off-season, they go and play overseas. So they're exposed to a different support staff member. Sometimes in cricket, some people play for five teams in a season. So they've got five physios telling them what's wrong with their, with their stiff lower back. You've got five S&Cs. One says it's your back. One says it's your balance. One says it's your hammies. One says it's your ankle that you haven't sorted. The, the mental conditioning coaches notes the stress. I was listening to, you know, Shane Watson talking about, you know, some of his and your last week's podcast, some of his injuries were actually mental or stress related injuries, but the physio is just rubbing the calf and sore, but actually. So we need to be able to help the athlete understand and the big picture of what's actually going on and what's going to serve you the best. And for me, the top athletes, one of the things most consistent amongst them is they are the experts in their own body, their own game, their own mind. And they're very good at using other people to add to that knowledge. And I think the danger is with SNCs, physios, mental coaches thinking, well, I own this player's body, mind, or game, and I need to prescribe for them exactly what to do. I think that's the biggest trap. Uh, it's, it's, I couldn't agree with you more in, in that the athletes have the best knowledge and your point about them using other people um, they're easily the best ones that I've dealt with that will just say, yep, I know what's best for me, but I reckon I could borrow your experience in here or um, can you tell me how you worked in this particular environment and see if I can yes. learn something more? I, I think that's yeah. exactly right. Um, so, in so, the slight... challenge for us, you know, so the no, challenge you for got... us is how do, how do we then create athletes who are hungry to learn about their body for themselves? 
because yes. most schools produce athletes who at school they've been told what to do because the theory in school is these youngsters at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, they, they don't actually know what to do. So as coaches, we need to tell them. So they are producing athletes who don't think for themselves. And then when we get them at the more professional level, we then need to start helping somebody learn how to have a learning mindset. So, you know, for those, particularly at the lower levels, we need to start teaching athletes to learn for themselves and take responsibility because it's too late when they're 21 and they arrive at the professional level, you know, where I've been coaching and all of a sudden it's, the athletes never been asked to think for themselves, which happened in that Pakistan team that I coached and yes. said unsuccessfully. So how do you do and, that, Patty? It's, I, I, Peter, I really think it's a raising, raising this, having this conversational conversation at schools. And it's got to be with schools, coaches, with schools, authorities and parent bodies, as well as parents to understand are we at school going to try and produce a first team that wins? And if, you, if it's really important that the first team wins in South Africa, we've got a big problem, for example, in rugby, that if your school, your first team does well at a rugby school, then your school is deemed to be a really good school. And the way they do that is they get hmm. good coaches and they instruct the living daylights out of these kids and they pre-program them and spend so much time in the gym and just prescribe, 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 and you end up, with a short-term win-at-all-cost view the whole time, and there's no opportunity for, say, to let's create an environment where kids learn, where kids participate, and it takes – it might you need to start that at a young age, at 13. So, But if, if you did that, and if every coach from 13 in high school, from grade 8 through to matric, use that approach of we're going to just create thinking athletes and engage them a little bit more each year. What you'll have happen, have then is by that matric year, you'll have a highly intelligent team of athletes. And I believe the intelligence needs to sit on the field, not on the bench with us as support staff, because we don't make the decisions. Games now are won and lost in the key moments. When the game's on the line, it's who's able to make the smartest decision in that key moment of the game. And if we've got the intelligence on the field, there's a much better chance of that smart decision being made in that key moment rather than have some coach like we see in football run up and down and scream like a banshee uh, <laughs> telling people what to do or the rugby coaches, you see them animatedly screaming into the walkie-talkie to the water boy. And we know now from rugby with so many water boys, they, they pull that microphone out the ear or the reserves run in the field and the players don't want the reserves, the water boy to run in the field with the coach's instruction the whole time. I sat with a professional and international rugby coach yesterday and he said he found out at the end of the season that the players and everyone had decided that when you run in the field, you don't flip and come on and tell me instructions from the coach. So none of the, the instructions he was barking into his system was getting onto the field because the player said, we don't want it. We want to flip and we've got 60 seconds to get ready for something or fix someone's injury. We don't need more noise from the side. We need to be talking on the field about, guys, what do we need to do? Sorry, I digress. No, no, I like it. it. I like it. And so with your experience in, in teams and obviously creating um, self-learners and and curious athletes, um, what, um, what does the role of, say, and you mentioned before you might have 25 players from five different countries, what is the role of um, player connectedness and how can you bring all that together so that they're all, uh, you know, uh, going for the same goal or is it you're just relying on those competitive individual uh, to come together and, and, and be competitive as a group rather than be connected as a group? So, so I think that's a great question. For me, player, that player connectedness and communication is it's absolute gold. Um, and I think what, what really helped me and probably one of the, the, the things that's been most successful is I get players talking to each other preseason as much as possible. I want the players to understand each other. I want them to connect with each other. I want those communication channels to be really open and the more players are speaking and I'm listening, the better. And the more voices in the room. So I would always, when I get a new team, get players together and throw conversations into the room and get people talking in pairs, talking in threes. You know, if it's an opening batsman, there's an Indian, which happens in 
and I'm sure in all sports, but to use cricket, you know, you have an opening batsman from India, Rahul Dravid, when I started with Rajasthan Royals, and Shane Watson opening the batting. It's so important to have those two talk to each other and understand each other. Because what we do know in sport is the longer a team plays together in a healthy environment, the more they understand each other, they can read their body language, they know when each other's up or down, um, they can see when their game's a little bit off, they know what to say to their teammate when there's things a little bit off because of that, that deep, deep knowledge of each other. So the more we can fast track players understanding each other, players talking to each other, the more the communication, we all hear this communication is so important, communication, communication. Well, what's the quality of the communication and the openness and the willingness to have the real conversations? So I think that's critical, number one. And number two, one thing that doesn't happen in sport very often at all is players giving honest feedback to support staff. Because players, they say yeah. they're too scared. If a player's not happy, for me, an unhappy player is just not going to deliver nearly the results in the medium to long term. Maybe in short term, they'll deliver results than a, a happy player. So the happier and the more comfortable the player is in the environment, not comfortable as in having a party, and, but they, they feel at home in the team, the better. And the only way I can ensure that a player is really comfortable with everything we're doing and it's meeting their needs is they need to be telling me as coach, Coach, this works and this doesn't work. Well, I'm really tired and I know practice is important, but it's going to be serve me much better to stay back at the hotel, have a massage, uh, cool my and, – and just recharge my batteries. It's going to serve me much better than having my 167th training session of this year and thousandth if, of the last five is my career. What if a player uh... – you know, is, is what we would say out here colloquially in Australia, as you would probably know from your time out here, is taking the piss in that situation and, and uh, you know, um, perhaps being a bit lazy and taking advantage of the player-driven approach. Is it the players who bring him or her into line or is that yourself or you just create an environment where that's not tolerated? Um, so first prize is to create an environment where the players pull that player up and they pull that player up. Ideally, it's that the person who's closest to that individual, who's their mate, because that's the, the player, that's the person that individual is probably going to listen to most. And it's done in a way that best serves that individual. So, for example, we have this conversation preseason. What are we going to do when somebody goes against the way that we want to go about our business? Um, and first of all, it's acknowledged that anyone who's under pressure, under stress, maybe had an argument at home, they've had one or two bad games and get dropped when they think they should have had one more opportunity. That person's not going to be in a good mental, emotional space, and the chance of them doing something that doesn't quite work for the team and what we've agreed the way we're going to operate is fairly high. That's realistic. So we talk about that and say, if you happen to be that person, you're under pressure, you're under stress, um, you find yourself going against the stream or taking the piss. What do you want to happen? So what, and or the two questions, what normally happens? Well, what normally happens is the coach or someone in authority goes and pulls that person up and gives them a good talking to. Fair enough. Does that really work for you? Or is there a, another way you would like to be approached if you found yourself being that guy? And almost every time players say, no, we actually don't want to get that bollocking from somebody. If I'm behaving like that, it probably means that something's a little bit out. Something's not go work, going well for me that I need to go against the stream. I'd like someone yeah. who knows me really well to come and put their arm around me and say, are you okay? I'm noticing that you're doing stuff that's a bit different to what you would normally choose to do and we've agreed to do. What's going on for you? So one, it's support. And two, it's a reminder. Yes. And... It almost, it almost always works. The reality is that, and my approach is not a soft approach. A soft approach. I have released two people from the squad actually mid-season and let them go home as opposed to sent them home. So if someone really doesn't come online, then you know we're very clear up front. You know, there's this new t technical term in sport, the no dickheads policy. I'm yeah. completely in favour, and. 
as long as we clear that this this person is behaving like that and it's not because of my inability to manage a or lead a person who is just difficult or going through a difficult time or different to me. With a no dickheads policy as leaders or head coaches or captains, we first need to check in, is this my inability to manage someone who's in a tough space? And if it's generally not, which and the way, way to almost always do it is to check their track record. If they've done this in a couple of teams before, it's obviously them, it's not my inability. And then it's to be very clear, you know, it's courageous and quick to go, right, we're going to nip this little cancer in the bud. Sorry, bud, we're going this direction. You're going in a different direction. We've given you the opportunity to come with us. There's obviously you don't want to be on this bus. There is, there's another bus out there that would really suit you. So we'll release you to go and find that. And we'll help you find that bus. We'll be more suited. But it's obviously not our way. And that's okay because not everyone has to wants to go with this really nice, you know, player-driven uh, environment where hopefully players are happy and communicating openly with each other. Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love it. And I think that... Um, me as a you know fitness coach or um, Peter as a doctor, we can have a minor impact, but the players uh, sorting it out for themselves is is the absolute way to go. Um, uh, now, just slightly pivoting a little bit, and I, I have to ask this question before we finish. But um, one of the really impressive things I'm looking on your sort of uh, or doing some research about you about your background is you've got degrees from four different universities, but what I want to know, um, you were appointed, I think in 17 as a professor of practice at Deakin. Yes. Well, what, what's the role in that? How, how, uh, yeah, professor of practice. Uh, I'm fascinated by that title and, and, um, uh, the application of that. So, there was actually Deakin University, the, the dean at the Deakin um, Business and Law Faculty, where I'm a professor of practice there. He came with, we had a couple of intimate conversations about the approach that I was using in sport that I've been talking about, really harnessing the intelligence of the players. And he was saying, but that's what all of the, so much of the business leadership and business management um, philosophies is all around that. You know, it's around you know, harnessing collective wisdom or whether you want to call it a, um, a servant leadership approach or whatever it might be. And he said, wow, this is, you're talking all the business philosophy that we preach mm-hmm. talking about at the business school. And my answer was, well, that's actually where I got it from. 20 years ago, I did a master's degree in business coaching and understood how the business leadership terrain is changing, particularly with the advent of the internet. I worked a whole lot in business and in doing that business coaching and just because of my currency and my connect contacts in sport, I was able to translate this into the sports world because sports is also just business, uh, but sports are just being slower on the uptake of harnessing the wisdom of the team that business CEOs are doing because the, the approach a lot of sports coaches are using now, if they took that and they went over into business and tried that approach, they would get spat out the system very quickly. Um, and he said, well, why don't you, let's come and do this stuff. And so, so I'm teaching this stuff through the, the Deakin University Law and Business School and writing online courses and really just straddling business and sport because the philosophy is the same. We're dealing with human beings in a high-performance, high-pressure pre- professional environment of which sport and business, they're the same thing. The context is different, but... Um, it's the it's the same um, philosophies apply, and it was really through the, the professional practice part was you know although I don't have the PhD, I've got the two masters, and he's saying the experience you've gained and the the way you've applied this in business and sport um, is sufficient work. You know that's the equivalent of sitting and doing a five year academic study to prove this stuff worked. You've been doing this for fifteen hmm. years in practice. And the evidence and the academic foundation and your experience is sufficient for, um, you know, the professorship rather than going and, you know, said writing the academic. You've practically been applying it for 15 years and that's the professional practice as opposed to pure academia. It's uh, refreshing to, to the deacon was able to recognize that because one of the frustrations um, 
that we all in the field have is that the evidence base that we learn through doing and observing is is often not recognised in academia. So that's really, uh, yeah, really refreshing to to see that that's what they're doing. Last question before Brookie asks you probably a thousand cricket questions, and you guys go off in that sort of uh, cricket tangent. Um, <laughs> is can can the business world learn anything from your experience in high performance? Have you, have you been able to take it the other way? Yes, very much so. So, um, I I think. So I think business would do that. They do an average job of going over into sports to getting what is sports doing? Because what happens in sports, your results are much more short term. Business, it's quarterly generally. Uh, sports is much more short term. The team dynamics in sport are so much more advanced than the team dynamics that happen in a business place, and especially now where people aren't even sitting in the same office. So there's so much that business can learn from sport. Uh, that I don't think they've done a great job. At the moment, what they've been doing is they get a sporting celebrity to come and speak for one hour and tell entertaining stories, and they throw quite a big budget at that. So it's it's really nice entertainment, but I don't think that the business gets much tangible, medium to long term benefit from, benefit from that, other than a signed shirt or a bat. Uh, <laughs> so I think business could do a lot better of getting this expertise. And what do you do in sports? And it's not so much what you do. What is the thinking behind? what you do and how can we translate that in the same breath? I think, I don't think sport have, they are doing better now, but I don't think over time, the last decade, they've done a very good job of borrowing from other sports. So cricket took ages to borrow from another throwing sport. Um, and I really do believe that some of the best interventions that I've brought into cricket, I've found from gone and found from other sports and brought that back in down to, I see you had, you know, big wave surf on your show. Big wave surfing has got so much to offer and particularly a big wave surfing and free diving around what the stuff that they're discovering around breath hold and managing the mind around breath hold for their sports. There's some significant stuff that other sports have got to get from that, but they haven't figured that out yet. Um, so I think inter-sport or interdisciplinary learning, it's, it's pretty good. And I found my time working in Australia that Australia are probably ahead of South Africa, UK, New Zealand um, when it comes to learning from other sports. But I think we're still relatively in our infancy um, and we need to start collectively sharing stuff across disciplines and industries. Awesome opportunities to be gained mm, there. Absolutely. Paddy, I'm curious about uh, what the future holds for, for you. Um, I know you've just put a book out. Uh, tell us about that for a start. So that's, you know, the Barefoot Coach, that was really just the best of my learnings and philosophies from working um, largely in cricket, but in some other sports. Um, and the whole idea was, uh, it's not a show and tell. It's sort of more written for the discerning reader who's interested in learning some stuff around management and leadership and performance and around thinking differently about the same things we de deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and I'm not quite sure what the future is. I've, I'm just fascinated in staying at the front of the learning curve in and around. I'm particularly fascinated. My is not so much in, in a cricket, for example, that I spent a lot of time in, but more around the people side of performance. And I, I just want to keep pushing the envelope and keep learning there around team culture and just how – how can we do that even better? Um, leadership, which obviously is completely tied into that, tied into high performance. Because we, everyone's been saying the mind is so important in sports um, and we think the way to deal with the mind is to get a strength and condition, I mean a mental conditioning coach onto the support staff. That is not that a drop in the water when it comes to working with the mind. Um, it's everybody, everything that happens in a team culture and team environment impacts the mind. Um, I think some of the most overlooked and important people in the mental game is the, is, the is the physiotherapist and the doctor. Most, particularly male athletes, are too scared to share their vulnerabilities for obvious reasons, so they hold everything in and it, it comes out much later. The first people that get to see that is the doctors and the physiotherapists because that's the place these big, strong, tough male athletes go to to be vulnerable and sore and they have to share that my knees sore, my body sore, my head sore. So they step naturally step into this vulnerable place. 
the most invaluable stuff comes off the physio and the doctor's bed. And I think Peter's got to see that, and that's why I probably spent so long doing what you did in the role you did, because you added way more than just being the doctor. Um, I think S&Cs spend a lot of time with players, a lot of downtime between sets in the gym, just getting to, to speak shit. And in that time, it's an invaluable time, I think, and it's not just downtime to speak muck between sets. Uh, really smart S&Cs. The, uh, the, the value you can add to play and stuff you can get from a player and the relationship that happens in that space is immense. And that needs to be brought in. And the head coach, you know, and all of that stuff together, if that lines up much better and there's, there's much more collaboration around those conversations, um, that for me is fascinating, is we've got so much we've room still to, to cover and just uh, around the people side of performance. Science, we, we're so smart around sports science. We're very smart around... The, the, the medical side of things, tactic, technique, strategy, video analysis, data, technology. We're so advanced. That's not the differentiator going forwards anymore. It's the people side. So, Paddy, is there a, is there a sport or is there a team in the world that you you've say to yourself, I'd love to get my hands on them. I'd love to, to have, uh, get involved with them. I could really make a difference. Um. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'd love to work in, in so many different sports, you know, and look, maybe to answer that question differently, there's, there's been teams that I thought, wow, this is like the, this, this team is, they, they getting it right. Uh, I'd love to go and learn. And then I've come close and somehow find a way to, to learn what are you guys doing? What's happening inside that's got you to where you've got to. And the thing around sports is, you only need to be doing a small something a bit better than your competitors to win a tournament. And then people think, wow, those guys have really got something right. Um, but I think there's, I think we still, in 10 years' time, we're going to look back at what we're doing today in sport, in professional sports. I think in so many, particularly team sport, not individual sport, in team sport, I think we're going to look back in 10 years' time and we're going to say, I can't believe we were still doing that stuff then. Like we really weren't that smart. Um, so who was who were some of those teams you think have uh, have you know got it right? I mean, as you mentioned just then, that you'd love to well, learn from. I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest and maybe controversial here. When I've really come to understand those teams, I've thought, wow, you're getting some stuff right, but there's so much stuff that you're really not getting that right. You're just getting it more right than other guys, but other guys are 10 years behind. And when I did my, when I did my, my research, my master's in, in business coaching, and I looked at what's happening in the, in the sports coaching world, specifically cricket, all the research at the time said that sports coaching is 10 years behind best thinking in, um, in business and in the leading businesses. And I don't think in that 15 year, and in my thesis, I wrote there that there's a, a competitive advantage that sits here now in coaches harnessing the intelligence of the team or collaborating or using a more inclusive approach because that's happening in the best businesses in the world. This is what they're doing. This is the results that they're producing. And they are just 10 years ahead of sports. So what I wrote there, I said that this competitive advantage sits here. In the next three to five years, whoever the early adopters are, are going to get ahead. And the thing is, this opportunity is only going to be here for about three to five years because it's open and out there for everyone to see what the best leaders are doing to bring the best out in people. And sports is going to wake up. 15 years later, there's not, there's the minority of sports teams have picked that up. So I think we're still 10 years behind best thinking that's out there and available anyway. We don't have to reinvent things. When I stepped in and I came to really understand what was happening in that Australian cricket team that was winning World Cups and dominating the world and doing so awesomely, and I stepped into you know coaching the Big Bash League, and I was like, I can't wait to get and see what Australia are doing right. You know what? They're doing things more right than in areas than other countries. But it was like, wow, there's still so much stuff available to be done here. And we don't have to innovate. We just need to look, what are other guys doing? 
in other high-performance environments and just bring that and, and just adapt it for cricket. So that's been my big aha in, this, in a lot of the top American sports, you know, and, and in football, which is, you know, the biggest sport and the richest sport. And I look what the best teams in the world are doing and the way they're going about man management and leadership and creating environments and learning cultures. And I scratch my head and I'm going, Exactly what I said earlier. In 10 years' time, we're going to look back on this and go, I cannot believe that in the year 2020, that's how Manchester United or Barcelona were actually going about high performance. Flipping out. How backward were we? So the opportunity is there. Neither neither of them are going so well at the moment. No. No, not fantastic. What about, uh, give me the one common, if you can narrow it down to one, Patty, or uh, the leaders have um, successful leaders in terms of they could be coaches, they could be people like Brookie and the medical staff. Um, what would be the, the most common trait that they have? I would say that they have there's two distinct aspects to them. They have a high level of expertise in whatever their field, but they that's their profession, then as a person, they have a, a sense of, um, a deep sense of security, self-awareness, self-esteem. They're good people. Uh, and when you're a good person with high self-esteem and you don't identify yourself with your, whatever your professional expertise is, then ego tends to be able to sit down. It's easier to listen to people. It's, uh, to not get caught up in the ego. And when you, as a leader, it's easier then to listen to people. It's easier to get feedback. It's easier if your team does well, you don't get all excited and think you're the best things in sliced bread. And when you do badly, you don't think that your team is shit or you shit or listen to people who criticize you. So for me, leaders, it's really having high self-esteem uh, separate to um, what I just so it's who I am who I'm being as a person is high quality person. And what I'm doing is also high quality. And for me and athletes, particularly, that's what really impresses me. People say, who's your know, favorite athletes and things like that. I love people who are really high quality, good people who don't have a lot of ego involved. Um, and in fact, as leaders, the single biggest obstacle to our success as leaders is ourselves or more specifically our ego. And the degree to which we can put our ego aside, is, I think, is the degree to which we actually long, medium to long term success is available for us. So that idea of, the, you know, just being a, a genuinely good bloke or a good chick, politically incorrect on terminology, but it's said from the right space, um, I think for me is the most important thing. You know, so, in, yeah. you know, India, I've got a guy like Rahul Dravid, you know, he's just such a good guy with so much gravitas as a person, and yet such a high level of expertise. You know, I was lucky to work very closely with Mike Hussey. You know, Mike, great example, great cricketer, just such a humble, down-to-earth guy, so easy to work with and relate to. And I think that's being a good person and, and flipping good at what you do, and they're two different things, I think is the single most important thing that stands out for me. Don't just uh, well, Patty, don't that's be a dick. Uh, probably a Pretty great simple. note to, to finish on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no dickhead. So, Patty, it's it's been fast. I mean, I could listen to you uh, all night, to be honest. Uh, it's it's fantastic. But uh, we better finish things off now. Really appreciate your time. Uh, I know it's early in the morning in uh, in South Africa. Uh, thanks for getting up uh, so early. And we, uh, yeah, we can't thank you enough for. Uh, I'm sure everyone who listens to this is going to get a lot out of it, especially if you're a you're a coach or uh, any sort of anyone in high performance. Uh, if you can't learn something from the, from the last hour, then uh, you shouldn't be in the business. So, Paddy, enormous thanks from both of us. Awesome. Thanks, Thank you very much for having me on the show.